0: Welcome to this video presentation. I hope you find the material here useful, and if you do, please remember to subscribe to my channel. How to answer problem questions. We are now moving on to the substance of our discussion on how to address questions in examination conditions. First, let us have a closer think about how to deal with problem questions. The key issue about a problem question is to identify the legal issues that, you, issues that you need to discuss. What do we mean by legal issues? A problem question won't mention a series of things, but it is only issues of legal significance that you need to discuss. It will not necessarily be just one legal issue raised in each question. Examiners traditionally are trying not to include topics in the same question. Normally, you will not have a problem question that within it contains something from the beginning of the study guide, one element from the middle, and one from the end. Things tend to stay within specific areas. However, there will still be distinct legal issues. One of the common problems with answering problem questions is that you might miss some of the things that you need to discuss. Therefore, You need to read your problem question carefully and identify how many legal issues are there that you need to discuss. If you miss some, then it obviously reduces your mic quite significantly. For for every issue that you've identified, you need to make sure that you state the law appropriately. What does it mean to state the law? You might have a personal impression of what the law is, but it is not your impression of the law that matters. It is where and how it is expressed in legal authority. Students usually ask where to put case law and how many cases an answer is meant to mention. There's a simple answer to this question. You're not allowed to offer any statement of law without supporting authority. Whatever legal point you put through, you need to offer a case or statutory reference that shows that this is a statement of law, not the statement of your personal opinion. When I'm having classes with my students in a traditional campus environment and we're having a seminar together in which they offer a solution to a legal question, I keep asking them why. Then they explain that something should happen. I ask them again why. Students students keep coming up with explanations as to why this suggestion is rational and it should work one way or the other. The answer to the why question, however, is not to be found in a logical explanation. The answer to the why question is because you have a case that says so, or you have a statute that says this is the law. To summarize, you need to identify each legal issue in a problem question. You need to state the law. And stating the law means offering appropriate authority. Once you've done this, you need to apply the law to your issue, meaning that you bring the facts of the problem question and the stated law together to that is valid in law. Then you need to reach a sensible conclusion. Now, what is this about sensible conclusions? Your analysis needs to reflect what the law is, and you need to come up with something as a conclusion that reflects what you've been saying previously. You may be thinking it's fairly obvious. How could one get this wrong? Problem questions require that you have advised somebody. They offer you a scenario and it says in the end to advise somebody. People sometimes understand this to mean that they need to reach a successful outcome for the person that they're advising. People get worried that if they don't come up with something positive or don't come up with something positive for their so-called clients, then they're going to lose marks. Consequently, some students identify the issues correctly. They state the law. They analyze it, but when they reach the conclusion, because the analysis does not seem to be very positive for their clients, they panic and they come up with something else entirely. Don't do this. All questions are put in this format for reasons of structure. They say, advise A, B, C. This does not mean that you're obligated to find a successful outcome for your client. If your analysis of the law says that your client doesn't actually have a case and they're going to do something like that, you're entitled to say it. If it states that your client has a preferred outcome and you cannot get them that preferred outcome, you're entitled to say that as well and you can offer something else. You say the client cannot win on this argument or cannot achieve this outcome, but they can achieve something else that is perhaps not the best solution, best solution but a preferable possible option keep this in mind you identify the issue state the law you apply the law and your conclusion matches what you've been saying as you are doing all these things you need to keep your structure coherent you will not be there to explain to the examiner talking about your paper needs to communicate on its own think about this when you're writing in order to achieve a coherent answer you need to do a little bit of planning before you start writing Usually, in the exam hall, you're allowed to do some draft notes. But then you cross them out so they're not considered by your examiner. You have to take the time to do this and plan your answer properly. If you jump straight in and start writing, first of all, you might miss a lot of relevant issues to discuss. And then your answer might become confused. It might be difficult to read. If your structure is not clear, the examiner won't be able to follow what you're saying. You will not be there to explain it to them. Therefore, you will lose marks in the end. You should also not disconnect the law from the analysis. You need to engage in this process that I'm describing for every legal issue. You should not write two pages saying, here's the law on misrepresentation. Then another two pages where you offer your analysis, but you don't actually refer back to the law. You're supposed, for every legal issue to do this, state and apply and reach a conclusion. You should not offer a reproduction of the textbook on one end and then have a non-referenced discussion on the other. This may sound a little bit difficult at the moment, and it is a process that you've been naturally going through as you're working your way through your study guide. You've gone through past exam paper questions, all the questions for discussion, all the sample questions in your study guide and on the VLE, and you will have gone through this process already. None of the above should be unfamiliar. The unfamiliarity, perhaps, comes from the time frame that you need to do this in. Having to handwrite it in time conditions in an exam, this is what makes it difficult. Otherwise, this approach to answering a problem question is not unfamiliar. Essay questions can be more challenging to get right than problem questions. The best prepared students who really know a topic deeply can provide exceptional answers to essay questions because they have enough material to write about. Less prepared students or students forced to answer the questions that they have not revised very deeply tend to do worse in essay questions than they do in problems. This is because a problem question has enough bulk in it it says a lot of things on its own just the effort to unpack the problem question gives you a lot of things to talk about this may not be the case with an essay question an essay question on the other may be a one-liner it could be something that says the statute on third-party rights is not sufficient discuss this does not really give you a lot of things to talk about If you don't already know a lot about the subject, you might start answering the question and you find that you've written half a page or you've written a page and you have nothing more to say. In addition, because you've spent so much time writing this one page, you cannot afford to cross it out and go start another one. The important message therefore is that if you're starting an answer to an essay question, make sure you start on a topic that you really know about because if you because you don't want to run out of things to say after just a single page. In order to address an essay question appropriately, you need to interpret what the question is asking. This is very important. You need to answer the question set by your examiner. You are not meant to reproduce something that you prepared at home on the broad topic of the question. This, this is a problem that we have very often. Students have revised or have studied a particular topic and they have prepared answers in their heads. They see something and they think, that's an essay question on frustration. Then plop down on paper whatever they prepared without actually checking that, what the question is in fact asking. Do not take a keyword from an essay question and use it as an opportunity to write down everything that you remember from the textbook. You have to make sure that you interpret the question properly and you're answering the question as set. You need to identify what is the relevant information, and you need to present it appropriately. Another issue with essay questions is that very often you are asked to analyze. You need to evaluate. You need to explain. Now, what do all these terms mean? One of the weaknesses with British academia, if you want to talk about standards in general, is that we assume that everybody knows what we're talking about when we talk about critical analysis. But very often people don't. In order to critically analyze, critically evaluate, and so on, what you need to do is offer a set of opposing views or different views, compare them, and then position yourself against them it is difficult to have a critical analysis unless there are two sides to the story. Very usually, the question, as you will see if you go through the past exam papers, is on a contentious topic. It implies that some people think something's a good idea, while some other people think it's a bad thing. For example, if the question states, the Consumer Rights Act has been a positive innovation in the law of consumer rights, particularly discussed, You should try and come up with arguments that say, well, yes, it led to improvements here and here and here. However, it might have negative consequences here and here and here, or it failed to address these problems. You present these differing views. You offer examples from the case law, link to the statute, link to the statute, and then you position yourself against them. After you've presented the various views, you can state which one you prefer and why you prefer it. What we don't want is a very dry presentation of the law without any input from yourself. Also, we don't want a very personal take court judgment you like without any reference to the relevant literature without adequate presentation of the law. You're entitled to express your personal view and your personal preference in an essay question after you've presented the views as expressed in the literature and or the case law. This combination of the two sides, it's this comparison of views pro and against something, is what in the end makes for a critical analysis and a critical discussion. To go back to the essay question, you need to read carefully to go through your question and then offer a reasoned conclusion. As I said before for problem questions, your conclusion is to match what has been discussed. Your essay needs to have a narrative flow and a conclusion that brings together what you said before so you don't forget what you're talking about, and do not offer a conclusion that doesn't actually match your analysis. That will lead you to lose marks. One of the things that concerns students is how to start and how do you finish. With a problem question, you don't have much of a problem because the problem question will usually say, advise somebody. You can start your problem question by saying, in this answer, I will be advising Mr. X on how to achieve Y. This is given to you by the question, so it's straightforward. Similarly, in the conclusion to your problem question, you can say, we have advised Mr. X on how to achieve Y, and this is how close to it we can get. In essay questions, starting and finishing is a little bit more difficult because they're open ended. But the trick is to keep things simple. Unfortunately, a lot of students seem obligated to tell the examiners about how the world is a global village and offer some self-evident commentary about globalization, regardless of what the question is actually asking. Do not write something grand-sounding that is actually irrelevant to what the question is asking. Keep it simple and keep it to the point. Why Why is that? Because you don't actually have the time and space to talk about things that are not necessary to your answer. Be brief relevant into the exam technique timekeeping is the most important thing about a controlled time exam you need to make sure that you leave yourself enough time to read carefully and select which questions to answer and once you start writing your answers to have enough time to do each one you want a sure way to fail one sure way to fail the exam you do not answer all the questions requested this is tragic, but it happens every year at all levels of study. You get some students who are trying to write perfect answers, and they run out of time and they cannot complete one of the answers. You will always get a better outcome in all answers attempted on your exam paper, even if they're incomplete. You will arrive at a much better outcome if you end up with four incomplete answers, rather than having three perfect ones and the, and the last completely missing. It is simple math. If you've done three very well and the fourth one well, but you've written something, even if it's not good enough to get a pass for that particular question, you've still earned some marks because you've done something. If you've written nothing at all, then we have no choice but to give you a zero mark for that fourth question, meaning your average is going to be lower if you don't write anything at all. Lower if you don't write anything at all. It is better if you set yourself a strict time frame. The moment the time that you've allocated yourself for each question runs out, you just stop writing, even if it is mid-sentence, and you go begin the next question to ensure that you get all of them done. You will have done. You will have a better outcome this way than trying to finish each one as you're going through it and then return and then running out of time completely before the last one. What length of answers are you going to have? Well, that depends on a number of things and will be affected by the type of question and how many legal issues the question also depends on your handwriting. Some people have got tiny, tiny handwriting. Some people have got much bigger handwriting. So we're obviously ending up with different lengths on exam papers. In my experience, in a three-hour exam that you have to do four questions, if you end up, writing less than one page, end up writing less than one page per question, then probably you forgot something. It doesn't look like a page is enough to address everything properly on somebody's standard level of handwriting. But I cannot give you a definitive answer that says, everybody needs to do three pages per question. The only way to get a feel about how much you're capable of writing in the time that you've got is to try this at home. You should access the past exam papers, set your watch running and try within the allocated time to see how much you can write. Then you assess what you've done. Are you able physically to handwrite enough to address the question properly within the time allocated? If not, you need to train yourself in order to be able to write faster. If you try this at home and you work on the past exam papers enough, you will get a feel of when you've reached a sufficient level, both in the quality of your answer, readability, and the length of your efforts. If you prepare properly, you will be less stressed in the actual exam because you will know how you're doing. What is really bad practice is not to have tried anything practical at all, just to do your reading and to do your revision, but not to actually attempt to write anything in timed conditions. So this is likely to be very stressful. So practice at home, work it out. How much time do you need for each question to be able to answer all questions and to give yourself some time to read, some time to plan? How much time is that? Start doing it at home and see how much you can actually write within the allocated time. The people who best marks are the people who are best prepared and they've put in the effort of trying these things out at home before they reach the exam hall. Exams are like a cooking show. No one tries a cake for the first time when they're in the studio being filmed. Right now let's summarize what is crucially important. You need to read all the questions carefully and properly. Do not skim read the exam paper. You know what happens if you skim read the exam paper? You're thinking, this is the question on formation, that's the question on modification, that's the question on frustration, I'll do these ones. Then when you sit down to write your answers, your ideas are actually about something else, or they contain some aspects that you don't know about. So you need to read the exam paper carefully, properly, give yourself the time to do it, and then select the questions to attempt to answer. Once you made your selection, you have to stick to it. You do not have the time to say, not have the time to say, "Alright, I wrote a page here, but I don't actually know anything about the subject. I'll cross it out and start a new one." If you do this, you have lost valuable time. Give yourself time to write. Keep your structure clean and understandable. Keep your handwriting legible and leave yourself lots of space. If you start writing edge to edge, everywhere, in a nice tight handwriting, then you realize you forgot something. Where is it going to fit? If you write every second line, remember, of course, that you need to respect the instructions of the invigilator in the exam hall. If you leave enough space and you remember a case name or you remember something extra, you've got the space to actually write within the line so it looks nice and it doesn't look messy. If you forgot something that needs more space you can also put an asterisk and have it at the end of the paper so your examiner will know where to find it all this is obvious when you're nice and relaxed when you're sitting at home with a cup of tea you're nice and relaxed when you're sitting at home with a cup of tea when you're doing this in the exam and you're super stressed and you're struggling to remember the content then it's not as easy To summarize, therefore, make sure that you keep your handwriting legible and you leave lots of space and you leave yourself the opportunity to correct any errors. Last but not least, do not attempt to cheat. The consequences of cheating are actually very severe and depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, it might prevent you from joining the profession. Cheating in exams in certain countries for certain professions is considered an ethical offense and then you cannot become a lawyer an ethical offense, and then you cannot become a lawyer. Also, do not bring with you anything that you're not allowed to have. It could be that you're not attempting to cheat, but somebody else thinks that you are. If you're not allowed to bring in any material during the exam, but you've got some of your notes in your pocket, it could be because you were reading them on the attempt to cheat. Uh, You don't intend to use these notes. However, if they fall out of your pocket during the exam and the invigilator thinks you were trying to cheat, you will get banned from the exam. You will be inviting all sorts of trouble. Make sure that you follow the instructions of the invigilators to the letter. If you've got anything with you that might be considered material you're not supposed to have, leave it or give it to the invigilator before the start of the exam. Do not argue with the invigilators. If they tell you you're not allowed to have something and you're unhappy, you can raise an issue with the university later on, but you do not have the opportunity or the the exam hall. If they tell you you cannot have your bottle of water with you, then you have to give it to them. Also, if there's something that you don't like about the exam, your exam paper is not the place to put the complaint. Do not lose time by putting a note in your exam paper saying, they didn't let me keep my statute book. I'm unhappy with this. This is serving no purpose. You should complete the exam, raise any issues with the university separately after you've left the exam hall and not on your exam paper. Equally, you're not allowed to write any personal messages to the examiners in your answer book. The only thing that I've seen that is acceptable to me, all right, I ran out of time. When students finish something mid-sentence in the, uh, for the examiner to understand that they've stopped and went to the next question, they write in a bracket, I ran out of time. This is the only message to the examiner that you will ever see in an exam paper, nothing else. Remember, you need to follow your instructions very, 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 very closely. It's worth repeating that anything that displeased you is something for discussion later on, not on the exam paper, not during the exam. Finally. This exam, as every exam, is a technical exercise. You should not be offended, and you should not get depressed if it doesn't go well. Not get depressed if it doesn't go well. Your performance in the exam is not a reflection of your worth as a person. It's not a condemnation of your personality. It's a technical exercise, and you're here to demonstrate your knowledge of a particular subject matter in a very constrained way if the exam doesn't go well it doesn't mean that you don't know anything and you should be very upset it means that you need to have a think about how you studied for it how you did in it how you prepared it and then try it again next time hopefully for a better outcome it does not mean that you have failed as an individual also there is something else to also there is something else to remember Because this is a technical exercise, this is measured against the learning outcomes that the module is set on. We will mark you on account of how closely or far away you are from these learning outcomes. An answer that is intelligent, innovative, unexpected perhaps, fact does not link to those learning outcomes does not earn you a mark what you're producing cannot be a socio legal analysis a sociological analysis of something or an opportunity for you to present a personal history or personal expression it needs to be something that links up with your material with your study material with your study guide with your textbook it demonstrates knowledge of contract law do not interpret the questions as a, in a way that is outside the module all the questions all your answers need to be very closely related to the learning outcomes set by the module something that is factual might still result in zero marks if it's got nothing to do with the module hence joke answers will get you zero marks if you're asked in which battle did x die and your answer is in the last battle This may be factually correct, but if the exam paper was a history exam, I don't factually correct, but if the exam paper was a history exam, I don't think you'll be meeting the learning outcomes. Sometimes we get students who are frustrated because they've produced something that is a good...